If you are visiting today, uh, we are glad that you're with us as we preach the gospel here at Redeemer. <clears throat> We've been studying the book of Romans. And as I've said many times, Romans is the apologetic of the Christian faith. You don't know what Christianity is all about, say the book of Romans. Where we come to today is probably one of the most significant passages in the Bible. I think one of the most well-known passages, maybe even better than John 3.16... Because Romans 28 through 30 is often quoted even by those who are not Christians when it comes to things happening in our lives that we don't understand. And so I want us uh, this morning to look at Romans 8, 28 through 30. This is uh, what I would call fudge. And I don't know how to preach one sermon on these three verses, but here we go. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray together. Father, these are deep truths because the scriptures are acknowledging you as the God that we can know, the God who is the sovereign God, the God who is good. And yet, Lord, we seek to process this. Many of us who are here this morning who are in despair, who um, are struggling with the realities of who you are, the truths of the gospel, the doubts of the resurrection. And, Lord, I confess that I am not up to the task to lift their eyes up to see Christ. And so, Lord... Would you give me grace to preach your word to the encouragement of believers and to the conviction of those who are unbelievers or those who are moving away from the faith, that they too might see Christ, risen from the dead, coming again, creating a new heavens and a new earth. And so we ask these things in your name and for your sake. Let me tell you what I want to address today. Let me just get straight up there with it. What I wanted to do is talk today about God's goodness and His sovereignty as it works its way out in the lives of believers if you're a Christian. How it works its way out in your life. Because that has always been the philosophical question, the theological question, uh, the question of the, 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 the layman. If, if God is all-powerful and is able to deliver me, then why am I in these circumstances? Why do things just keep going on and on and on? And on the other hand, uh, if, if God is, is good, and I know He cares about me, I know He cares about me, uh, but He's not powerful, then what good is it that He's sympathetic And so as I started thinking about this and talking about this passage as one of the most quoted passages, the most misunderstood passages, 
I started thinking uh, about uh, uh, hearing John Stott many years ago, who is a great Anglican minister. He's still alive, actually. He's in his 90s. Perhaps you've read his books. Uh, he is from England. And back in the 70s, he was asked to come to Philadelphia at 10th Presbyterian Church to preach a, a sermon on the sovereignty of God. And so he said that he arrived in Philadelphia for the first time. He got out of the gate and walks into the lobby. And the first sign that he sees is not a bathroom sign or a baggage sign. He sees a sign that was a slogan from the Revolutionary War that said, We serve no sovereign. <laughs> and of course, he had been under kings and queens. And all of a sudden, it, it, it struck him the daunting task of explaining the absolute sovereign king of the universe to Americans. Because we live in a democracy, not a theocracy. And, uh, and I believe in a fallen world, probably the best, uh, the best government is representative government. And, and so we tend to think in these terms. We tend to think in terms of the sovereign self. And that we're capable, we're able to take care of ourselves. And this thinking has slipped into the, the church since the Revolutionary War. Before the Revolutionary War, there were seven denominations. Seven. Most of them reformed or reformed leanings. By 1820, there were 30 or 40 denominations. And now there are thousands of denominations. But at the heart of much of the teaching that has slipped into reformational thinking and biblical thinking is the sovereign audience. That rather than us getting on our knees and asking Jesus Christ for mercy, would you have mercy upon me, O sovereign Lord? Basically what we teach is God is somewhat sovereign. He has somewhat made it possible for you to be saved. And rather than Jesus crashing in the door of your heart... He basically gets on his knees and knocks on your door. And, and asks you, would you let me in? And so it makes it difficult, doesn't it? To talk about how sovereign God really is. But here's what I want to do today, okay? Because I started looking at this text. And it has the word predestination. Did y'all see that? Um, I, I want us to see that, that predestination in this context is not to talk about what we call the doctrines of salvation. If you want to do that, go to Ephesians 1 where he talks about predestination. Or you can come back in about two weeks and I'll be preaching on Romans 9. And he talks about God's justice and mercy. This is there. But what Paul is trying to do, believers, listen to me in the context of talking about predestination and God's sovereignty, is in the context of Romans 8 that he's been talking for quite some time that what life in the Spirit looks like apart from life under the law is that there really is freedom in Christ, but there's still suffering. Okay? And so Paul is wanting to assure you this morning who have been in the grips of incredible stuff for maybe 10 years to encourage you to persevere. That's what he wants to do. Some of you, have been, one time you had a lot of money. Now you don't. 
You and your wife got along great five years ago, ten years ago, but now you don't. And you haven't for the last several years. And I was telling somebody yesterday, and you've heard me say this, but uh, a French proverb that says uh, trials are are like uh, horseback. They come in on horseback and they leave on foot, right? They all of a sudden, bam, everything was good and, and now it just stays and it stays and it stays. These are to be encouraging words to you this morning who are believers to persevere. Now again, if, if you're not struggling, you're probably young. And you probably haven't screwed your life up like the rest of us. And if you're older and you still don't think you've messed your life up and you're doing pretty well, then, you know, the gospel is not the gospel for you. But this is for you this morning who whether it's outward circumstances that we'll look at in a moment or whether it's inward circumstances which you're going, how can, God, how, how can you still love me, God? I have so messed my life up. I've messed my kids up. I've messed my marriage up. I've messed my finances up. But he says he loves you. And he's working all these things for your good. I'm going to give you three points, but before I do, let me give you one more context in Romans 8. John, you preached last week. Great sermon, by the way. And in the sermon, you you were preaching on the Holy Spirit groaning on our behalf because we don't know, right? We don't know what to pray. All of a sudden, something happens in your life and you're shattered. Or some friend of yours has something in their life. Maybe their marriage is falling apart. Or they've lost everything they have. Or they've had a child that's died. And you really, really don't know what to say. You don't even know what to pray. But what's interesting is we go from the I don't know to what Paul is saying in this affirmation in Romans 8, 28 that says, For we know. And friends, till we meet Christ, we will be in the tension of, I don't know, I know, right? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know in the present. But I do know this, I know what God has done in the past and the work of Christ. I know what is the future and the resurrection of Christ. And I've seen God work in my life. And the work of the Holy Spirit, my friends, is to get you to understand the reasons you don't know how to pray and what He is praying for you. That is the context. So there are three things to see, very clear in these three verses, and they'll break down for you. And if you're a kid and you started, you know, taking notes, listen to me. Here's the first thing that you'll see, is that there's a promise in verse 28 to us who are believers. And then what I want us to see in the second verse, in verse 29, is that there is a purpose to the promise that's been stated. And this will help clarify a lot of things. And then finally, I want us to see the reason that both the purpose and the promise are certain, whether you feel it or not, whether you even believe it or not. Struggling, my friends, doubting, wondering what's going on, wondering who God is, will feast on these three verses. The first thing that we see is that there is a promise. And the promise is quite, quite clear in verse 28. For he says, For we know that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. A lot of translations of this verse. A lot of translations of the Bible. Uh, the NIV has a translation. Maybe you have the NIV. This is the ESV, and I think it's a little bit weak. But let me give you the Greek translation. The literal Greek, and this is what is the way it unfolds in the Greek, and that is this. For those loving Him, God works together all things for good. For those who love God, for those loving Him, all things work together for good. No matter what translation you see or whatever translation you read, all the translations are making this point clear. Friends who are in Jesus Christ, that all things are working together for your good. Now, there's several implications of that, that one point. And the first is this, and you need to understand this. We see this in the verses, and that is this. Number one, that if you're a Christian, you're not exempt from suffering. It's not as though your circumstances will be better than others. That you won't su- you'll suffer less because you do the right thing. And you remember a couple of weeks ago I said, I don't understand the prosperity doctrine that's out there in America today. If you do X, Y, and Z, then you'll... Life will be good and your marriage will be great and and you give these little testimonials. Yeah, God didn't give me this, but he gave me that and you want to throw up because you know it's not true. Your best life now. Well, I, I don't know. We just got through reading Romans 8 and the best life now is that we have the privilege of entering into the suffering of others because this world is a place where there's problems. If you look at the end of the chapter where Paul talks about nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, you know what the list says in verse 35? Not hardship or trouble or persecution. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. You see, there is suffering. It's not like you're going to get exempt from that. All, all things work together for good. And so you're going to struggle in many, in just in many ways, but differently than those who are not believers in Christ. Let me let me tell you, uh, give you an example of this. I remember the first year I was a Christian. I was pretty dramatically converted. I mean, my life was turned around, bam, just like that. And I meet some that are that are like that. There are many at Redeemer whose lives have been changed like that. Some it's a little bit more of a different process, but you know you're in the kingdom. I remember my first year as a Christian was awesome. I mean, I'm starting to realize. I mean, I wasn't looking for God. Okay. And I'm converted. And then all of a sudden, I, I, I have a completely different relationship with everybody I know. Life is good. And I've got this idea that things at 18 years old are just going to keep trucking along, right? Man, I'm thinking, man, I can't wait to be 65, 70 years old at this rate. And then in my 19th year, my second year as a Christian, God apparently knew back then that he wanted me to be a minister of the gospel today. And so what he wanted to do, and of course he didn't let me in on the plan until about 10 years later. All of a sudden he begins to whack away all these things in my life, these trials and these tribulations. To the point after I was about 20 or 21, I'm reading Psalm 73, where the psalmist is saying, thank the Lord that the music leader is saying, 
In vain have I kept my hands clean. I'm trying to serve you. And I'm losing my girlfriend and I'm losing my health. I'm going to have to deal with things I've never had to deal with in my life and now I have to deal with things I'll have to deal with to the day I die. What good does it do? You ever felt that way? Well, let me tell you that as I began to study church history, and the same time I'm starting to, to wrestle with, wait a minute, it's not pie in the sky by and by. This is not a, your best life now. It's some days are miserable. Right? Well, I begin to read the scriptures, and I begin to see Joseph who's thrown in prison. Y'all remember Joseph? God didn't talk to him for seven years. And then he thinks he's going to get out. Remember he has a dream? Hey, don't, listen, I interpreted this thing right. Don't forget me before the Pharaoh, right? Y'all remember what happened? He forgot. Seven more years. But God had a purpose. And ultimately it was the salvation not only of Joseph, but it was the salvation of Israel and not only Israel, Egypt, because there was a famine in the land and God called him and raised him up for a future purpose. And so then I begin to read the scriptures and I go, oh, okay, well, God's saints go through hard times as well, not to mention our Lord. And then you go to Hebrews chapter 11, right? The faith chapter. Chapter of faith where uh, Samson did this by faith. David did this by faith. And he talks about these great things that have happened through those who live by faith. But you know what? If you get to the end of the chapter, I don't know what prosperity doctrine people do with the end of it because it says, and by faith some people wandered in caves and were cut in half. By faith. Read church history, my friends. And when you get lethargic, and when you get indifferent, and when you're more concerned about your circumstances than the circumstances of others, read about the blood of the martyrs. And those who suffered so that we today might enjoy the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I say this? Well, the reason I say this is because... The reason that we often struggle about the goodness of God is because we have a wrong expectation about what that goodness is and the things that God is up to. You know, Jesus Christ said, He it is who would be my disciple, he who would deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And so that's the first implication is that Christians aren't exempt, okay? Here's the second implication of this point here in point one. And that is that, that thankfully that God's at work. That in all these things, in all these details, in all the things that God brings in your life, both good and bad, as believers, God is at work. You know, I would love to teach you the philosophy of ministry. So if you want to get together with me and say, hey, I'd like to have a cup of coffee with you and tell you, I'd like to know what's going on here at Redeemer. I would tell you that uh, there's two pages, but on one page we have six presuppositions. So if you want to know the other five, come see me. But uh, you know what number one is? God's at work. That's, my first, that's the first presupposition we work off of. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because we don't know what we're doing half the time. I'm serious. I mean, I work on my sermons. John, you work on your sermons. And we pray and we do things. But I know that I haven't handled things right with y'all sometimes. I'm sure that some of the elders have, have disappointed you and maybe the way that they've responded uh, to your needs. 
But the great thing is that God rules and overrules. I, I'll tell you, y'all think we have this piece of property downtown four acres and 28,000 square feet because we were smart? I know the elders. <laughs> and the deacons, okay? It is because God wants the gospel to come here in our weakness. God is at work. Let me tell you, this past 15 years, as I look across this congregation, many of you have come to know Jesus Christ. What, what a wonderful thing. And yet we've seen people wander away from Jesus Christ. We've seen people come to Christ. We've seen people have to go under church discipline. I've seen people fall back in love, and I've seen people here this morning fall out of love. We've buried people that we love, haven't we? And yet in all these things, we don't know, but we know. How do we deal with these things? How do we pray about these things? What's Even with my children and your children, and you're going, my kid just doesn't seem to be interested in Christ. And we don't know. We don't know how to pray. But you know what we do know? God is working sovereign. And then notice that what God is working in in this verse, he's working in all things. Y'all see that? Not some things, not the big things, but in viruses that got in to your body, that that racked your body. God is at work in all things and that maybe you're a little bit more prone to alcoholism. And somebody else might not be. And, you know, you end up being the alcoholic. All things can be that uh, uh, you, you were so excited about getting married and you finally got married and, and it, it's not exactly what you thought it would be. But in all these things, God uh, is at work. So let me say this. Uh, It doesn't say that bad things are good, okay? Bad things are not good. And uh, far be it that Christianity in this verse is sugarcoating things. I'll, I'll tell you who sugarcoats it, denies it, and that is about every other religion and secularism that basically denies reality. But you know what the Christian faith does? It enters into the fact of what the Bible says that God saw, that he sends his son, and there he is at Lazarus' grave, and he's weeping. He didn't go, hey guys, watch this, watch this trick. Did he know that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Of course. So why is he weeping? Because he's dead, rotting. And if Lazarus is not coming out, all those other Jews that are next to, uh, if he does, all the other Jews are rotting and stinking in the grave. And Jesus sees the pain and the suffering, and it's not good, is it? You're losing your house, you're losing your finances, you're losing your spouse. That's not good. And so we don't want to sugarcoat it and go, oh, well, you know, I didn't get that girl. She dropped me. 
but all things work together for good. Therefore, I've got a better girl ahead. You might not have a girl at all, friend. <laughs> and you ladies, you go, well, I missed the, my boyfriend and he, he was engaged to me, but, you know, he broke up with me. But I'll get married one day. There's something better. Where's that in the Bible? Some of you ladies are going to be single all your lives because that's God's will. Some of you men are going to lose your wives that you love and cherish. Some of you who are financially fit right now won't be. And who knows what's going to happen in America. Would you all agree with that? I'm not into the 2012, and I certainly wasn't packing my bags on May the 21st or October the 21st. But who knows? And maybe one of the best things that can happen to the kingdom of God is for everything to collapse, all things, everything, so that we might look to Him. Charles Spurgeon says this about all things. And it's about a five-sentence quote. But if you listen to me, it's awesome. All things work together for good, but perhaps any one of those all things might destroy us, taken alone. The physician prescribes medicine. You go to the chemist and he makes it up. There's something taken from the drawer, something from the file, something from the shelf. Any one of those ingredients it is very possible would be a deadly poison and kill you outright if you should take it separately. But he puts one into the mortar and then another and then another. And when he has worked them all in with the, the pestle and has made a compound, he gives them all to you in a whole and together they work for your good. But any one of those ingredients might either have operated fatally or in a manner detrimental to your health. Learn then that it is wrong to ask concerning any particular act of providence, is this for my good? Remember, it is not one thing alone that is for your good. It is the one thing put with another thing, and that with a third, and that with a fourth. And then they're all mixed together, and they all work for your good. Your being sick very probably might not be for your good. Only God has something to follow your sickness, some blessed deliverance to follow your poverty. He knows that when he has mixed the different experiences of your life together, they shall produce good for your soul and eternal good for your spirit. We know right well that there are many things that happen to us in our lives that would be the ruin of us if it was always to continue in the same condition. Now listen to what he says. Too much joy, too much joy would intoxicate us. Too much misery would drive us to spare. But the joy and the misery, the battle and the victory, the storm and the calm, all, all these compounded make the sacred elixir whereby God maketh all his people perfect through suffering and leadeth them to ultimate happiness. All things work together for good. What a great illustration. And if you begin to understand this, you will finally get out of baby diaper Christian pants. And you'll begin to give thanks to God in all things. And so when the good comes, the great evening with your wife, you go home and you thank God. And then if your wife gets sick and she dies, you thank God. 
You learn to give thanks. It's a great sign of being a Christian. It's a thankful heart. So there, that's the promise. But then there's a purpose to the stated promise. What is the good? We need to define the good. It's certainly not season tickets. It's certainly not last year. It's, it's not, it's not the, the, the vacation home that uh, the, the, uh, the tree fell through when the hurricane or the tornadoes fell through. There's nothing wrong with those things. I'll, I'll, if you've got season tickets, trust me, I'll take one. But that's not the end in itself. Georgia wins the national championship. Remember that? 1980. I remember 1980 and I walked away and went, oh, that was it. And who remembers? Y'all know who won the national championship eight years ago? In basketball, baseball, football? It's all passing away. So what is the purpose? Notice what he says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. There's that word. Predestined. The dreaded predestination word. And people say, oh yeah, you're Presbyterians. Y'all believe in that the predestination thing, right? Let me tell you this, that in our text, number one, it's there, is it not? It's there. But not only is it there, if it's not there, then I'm telling you, all things aren't working together for your good. They're just working out there. Maybe some good, maybe some bad. And by the way, I do want y'all to know that I learned all my predestination doctrine from my beloved Baptist. And I'm serious about that. Charles Spurgeon, who I just quoted. John Bunyan, great Baptist. He believed in the absolute sovereignty of God. He didn't believe that God does his part and we do our part. Another Baptist. I'll go back and check the Baptist Philadelphia Confession of Faith, the 18-something or another. A guy started Southern Seminary. I started reading John Broadus, uh, Pettigrew, and, and uh, Manley. And you know what? They, they, do you know that Southern Baptist Seminary, all those, the guys that started Southern Baptist Seminary, believe that Christ died for the elect alone? They believe this particular redemption, and we'll see the importance of that in a minute. But let me tell you, if you say that you don't believe in predestination, everybody has a doctrine of predestination. And it's only the biblical doctrine of predestination that says God is sovereign, that actually leaves us freedom. If you're a materialist or you're a secularist, i tell you what it says, that uh, you're part of the evolutionary process, you don't have any say. You're in this big machine grinding you down. Certainly you don't have any say over your grave, do you? Or if you're a Greek, if you know the Greeks believed in the tragedies, fatalism, these things that we do, and boom, you're set on a course, and you're doomed, and there is no hope. There's no coming back. But what we have here, or the Eastern view, that when you die, that you become part of the cosmic whole and you don't know who you are anymore. You're just part of the one, the oneness. And by the way, that's a huge issue today. It's a sermon for another day, the loss of distinctions. But here we have in this this verse that God is absolutely sovereign and governing every single thing. There is an infinite mind. God has a plan. Hey, do you have plans? Why would you not think God does? If you're smart, you're putting something in a Roth IRA. You're trying to invest for the future. 
you got a plan. Why? Because when I get the end of my life, I'd like to be able to go to the beach every now and then. So you work the plan. And if you don't have the money, I say, God's sovereign over that too. But, but God has a plan. And what is the plan? The plan is that God is working everything out for your good in all the details of your life. I was with somebody the other day talk about Watergate. And you know, uh, do you know that Watergate uh, was because a guy left the door cracked? Two inch. I mean, if he'd pushed it, just shut it. And Nixon came down. Gerald Ford comes into office. And this person said that Gerald Ford's son went to Westminster Seminary. And uh, there was a professor who ended up uh, was from England that was not going to get a visa. But Gerald Ford's son said, hey, Dad, could you get him a visa? He got a visa. He came got the visa. He was able to teach the last seminary, last semester of Tim Keller, who's a pastor of Redeemer in New York City, and convinced Tim Keller that of being reformed. And Tim Keller basically uh, ended up uh, one of the greatest uh, preachers to the secular mind in New York City. And you know what? It all goes back to Watergate. That's what he said. Little door cracked. Then get shut. All things. Now some of you say this. Well, doesn't foreknowledge mean that God looked out there and saw who would believe and therefore he chose them? I wish I had time to talk about this, but no. Because the foreknowledge that he's talking about, not is like, uh, okay, I see it. But that doesn't, he does see it, but that doesn't make sense. That would go, well, God sees it and he knows who's going to believe in him, therefore he chooses them. No, no, no. Foreknow in the Greek and in the Hebrew is God has set his love. It is a personal God who has a purpose for everybody who names the name of Jesus Christ and that all these things are happening in your life so that you might submit yourself to Christ and become like Him. Guys, we need to grow up. And I know things are hard, but at some point we've got to go, Lord, I'm just, I, you know, I don't like this. I don't like it. I wish I had more. Yeah, does anybody wish I had more money? I confess I do, okay. Uh, but it'd be nice to have more money, but I got enough money. Uh, wouldn't y'all like, do you have these things out there that it's like, man, if I could just get there. And yet God is wanting to rip these things away in order that you might be conformed into his image because those things are keeping you from being, knowing the joy of being like Jesus. So there's a promise and there's a, there's a purpose of the promise. Does that make sense? And by the way, if I'm, listen, I want you. I want to know zero in on marriages because marriage is always kind of they're the they're the barometer of whether you know Jesus. Does your does your wife, men, think you're like Jesus? Do they, do they look at you and go, you know what? You've loved me when I was unlovable. And uh, you wives, do your husbands look at you and see in the same way that you're seeking to help your husband? and help people, uh, that they see Jesus Christ submitting to the Father, saying, I will help them, Father. I will give my body, my physical body, own a tree for them. Do your husband see you giving yourself to, to, to him? Being a partner together. You know, it's really sad that we don't see that. 
But the reason we don't sometimes is because we don't understand that this verse is for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose to be conformed in the image of Christ. And please, don't sit here and go, okay, yeah, right. Please, at some point, this has to connect. And then the last thing to say before we come to communion, and that is this. Um, there's a promise, there's a purpose. And then there's a the certainty of the promise and the purpose. Do y'all see that in verse uh, 30? Is God able to save you even though you screw up all the time? Have any of y'all messed your marriage up? Any of y'all kind of messed your finances up? You've messed your church membership up? or you met, Whatever it may be. Notice what he says. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, it's called the golden chain. He begins it, he ends it. And you know what's really cool about the glorified part? It's a past participle. I mean, a past, it's a past tense. You're already glorified. Do you understand in the mind of God, because he chose you before the beginning of the world, he predestined you, he foreknew you, predestined you, he calls you, he justifies you, and he glorifies you, then in God's mind you're already in heaven. Does he understand that we still goof it up? Yes, he does. But we're not there yet, are we? You think God could fulfill this if it was up to you and not him? God is able. Do we suffer? Of course we suffer. The whole creation is groaning. And sometimes we go, there is not good in this, don't we? You're, and you're still doing, you're arguing with this. And I understand, I do, I do. And God is gracious. He lets you work it through. But let me ask you this. If you were at the cross 2,000 years ago, you little children, if you and I could get out here in a parking lot and get in a time machine, and we could go back to the cross 2,000 years ago, I'm going to tell you we'd see Jesus who's God in the flesh. And he'd be bleeding on a cross, the Messiah. And if we didn't know what we know now, do y'all think that we would be sitting there saying, what a waste? Wouldn't we? Well, I thought he was the same. I thought, how can good come out of this? He has such promise. He's 33 years old and he's dead. How can good come out of this? Do you say that about your circumstance? Things are as good as dead. Well, you see, God knew what he's doing for us. You don't always know what God is doing, and it seems like he doesn't know what he's doing. But, oh, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, even if your marriage never ends up being what you want it to be, and it might not, you can be like Jesus. And even if you have to struggle with a physical illness that nobody else knows about, you know what, one day you're not. This world is a place that in the very weakness we are able to demonstrate the glory of the gospel. I close on this. Christ came and was humiliated, became powerless and died so that we might not be. So that we might be risen out of this decrepit estate that we find ourselves in and no newness is in Jesus Christ. But Jesus did not suffer to end our suffering. He suffered in order that our suffering is not in vain. He enters into our suffering in order that we might bear his image 
And one day we'll be glorified. Now, I ask you, do you know Jesus? Not do you know about Jesus, like knowledge about you. Has he set his love upon you? To which you go, Lord, I don't like this. But I like you. And I like what you're doing in me. That's a Christian. And I invite you to enter the kingdom of God this morning. To repent of your sin and your hardness of heart. And if you're already a believer but you've lost sight of this and you become bitter and angry, I implore you this morning, while, according to our text, while the Lord is near, submit to Him and rest in Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, time and your word. Oh, Father, I, I, know, I know my people. Some I know better than others. Some I don't know. Some I'm sure have not shared with me or others their great pain and suffering. Oh, God, would you please share, minister Jesus to them, those who've really goofed up. Father, would you cause them to know that you, you work in, you're working goof-ups to your glory. I mean, there was Bathsheba and David, and we have Jesus coming through them. Father, you take the big mess and you work it for good. Lord, would you make us like Christ? And Father, for those who are here today that don't know Christ, that they would quit striving to perform in order to get your approval, but they would look to him whom you have approved of, even Jesus, and rest in him. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.